So this morning, uh, I don't, I'm not going to read scripture beforehand because I have a lot of scriptures I'm going to read during the message, but we're going to talk about the church and money. And as you probably know, one of the most common complaints by those who are not churchgoers against the church is, uh, the church is just after my money. Uh, there was a cartoon that Linda sent me this week that pictures that, if you can put that up there, uh, Colt. Uh, hi, Pastor, I'm thinking of coming to your church. At the last one, all they did was talk about money, and somebody's grabbing the guy's wallet out of his back pocket. And uh, that's a pretty typical complaint. And let's be honest, it's often justified, isn't it? I mean, there are churches where every week the pastor is pressuring the people to give more. And in a lot of churches, every fall, it's stewardship campaign time. And for uh, sometimes extended weeks, um, members are asked to pledge how much they will give in the coming year. And in some churches, they even have committees that go out and and make sure people follow through on that and check them off the list when they complete their their pledges. And uh, some churches emphasize tithing. I got an email recently from a man who said that he was kicked out of his church uh, because he would not tithe to that particular church. Uh, And then, of course, we all know many of the TV preachers who are notorious for their luxurious lifestyles and They give all these appeals and tell people, if you will give to our ministry, God will abundantly bless you financially and so on. Uh, I've read that some of them even time their fundraising letters to uh, arrive in the mail about the same time as the elderly get their social security checks. So these guys are crass and just give a bad name to uh, the whole idea of the church and money. Now, putting aside all of the abuses, the reality is churches do need money to function. And so, before I finished with this series on the church, and uh, since money is a very important topic, I thought we should consider what the Bible says about the church and money. Uh, If I were to pick two key words that should govern the subject, I think it would be the words integrity and stewardship. And so I can sum it up what I'm saying today that the church should model godly financial integrity as good stewards of God's resources. Now, by integrity, I mean honesty and uprightness in all of our financial dealings, uprightness before God who knows everything. Uh, in 2 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul was collecting a large gift from the churches in Greece and Macedonia that he wanted to take to the church in Jerusalem to demonstrate the unity of the church, that there's not a Jewish church and a Gentile, but we are all one in Christ. And in that context, in 2 Corinthians 8, 20 and 21, Paul said, taking precaution so that no one will discredit us in our administration of this generous gift. Uh, For we have regard for what is honorable, not only in the sight of the Lord, but also in the sight of men. And that's integrity, that we want to please God, but also we want to be above board, up front, in front of people, in how we uh, deal with money. And when I talk about stewardship, I'm referring to the fact that all of our resources, and this is true both personally and as a church corporately, uh, they do not belong to us. We don't own anything. The Lord owns it all. We are just managers or stewards, and we will give an account to him uh, on the personal level for how we've used what he entrusts to us and also as a church. Uh, And so the topic of money in the Bible is certainly not a minor one. 
If you've read the book of Proverbs, it's all through the book of Proverbs in the uh, New Testament. Jesus spoke about money or possessions in 16 out of his 38 parables that are recorded. In the Gospels, this is pretty incredible, no less than one out of ten verses, 288 verses in all, deal directly with money. Uh, The Bible gives us 500 verses on prayer, less than 500 verses on faith, but more than 2,000 verses on money and possessions, according to uh, Howard Dayton. Uh, So we're dealing with a huge topic, and I'm only going to be able to skim the surface this morning. But basically, as I thought about it, there are three areas to consider. How you get money, how you spend money, and how you might save money for anticipated future needs. And so that's how I want to look at it. I believe that godly financial integrity in the first place then means raising money in a biblical way. And there are four positive considerations I want to give you and then one negative. First of all, positively, the church should raise money by teaching biblical principles of of personal financial management. Sadly, many Christians manage their money based on a model, I think, more of how the world does it rather than studying what does the Bible teach about this subject. And as I said, the um, content of the Bible is vast on it. But there are many Christians who spend more than they earn, uh, going further and further in debt, and they do it to support a lifestyle that, frankly, is shaped more by uh, advertising, the media, seeing how their neighbors live, thinking they've got to get everything that everybody else seems to uh, think you have to have to be happy. And uh, so they are just living as the world lives. And while I realize that there are many evangelicals, and no doubt many of you who are very generous in how you um, give to the Lord's work, the overall The statistics I've read overall show that American evangelicals, on the average, give about 2 to 3 percent of their income to the Lord's work. 2 to 3 percent is kind of the norm. Now, there are some who give 10 percent, and they figure, well, I've done my piece, given the 10 percent. I'm going to say more on that in a few moments. But the major problem. I think with many American Christians is if you're in debt, you're not free to give generously. There's always that debt hanging over you. And uh, it is really bondage. Back in uh, 1993, I gave a five-part series on God, money, and you. And you can read or listen to those on the church website. But in the first one, my main point was God wants you to be free from bondage to to greed and to debt. And those two are related. Uh, It is the greed that gets us into debt, where we think, I need more, and I need it now. And so we see something we think will make us happy, and we plunk down the plastic and buy it, and we're owing big time on it. And uh, those things tend to snowball. And... Uh, pretty soon we end up being enslaved to the lender. As the book of Proverbs says, the borrower is enslaved to the lender. Um, Debt often creates strife in marriages. I've read that it's one of the major causes of divorce in marriages as arguments over money erupt. And uh, debt prevents us, as I said, from giving generously to the Lord's work. Now, I'm going to give you a real basic, simple principle, and that is, if you don't borrow money, you won't get into debt. Real basic. And by borrow money, I'm including spending money on things you can't pay back. So the plastic idea. And a related principle to that is, if you're in a hole and you want to get out of the hole, 
stop digging. So if you're in debt and you want to get out of debt, you got to start living within your means and devising a plan for how to get out of debt. And if you want to get some very practical, and it's often humorous and entertaining, but I find that he uses his humor to open you up, and then he sticks the knife in. But uh, the Dave Ramsey course on Financial Peace University, I think it's called, uh, is a uh, helpful course in that regard. And Pastor Dan Barton leads it here. You can go online and sign up for it. The next class starts, I think, on September the 20th. And uh, yes, it costs a little bit of money, but it will repay you if it helps you get out of debt, uh, and it will. Also, there are other aspects of biblical financial management that um, you need to think about. As I said, the mindset overall has to be stewardship. I don't own it. God owns it. I am a manager for him. And he has purposes, just like if I owned a business and I turned it over to a manager, I have a purpose, namely to make a profit for the business. But I would expect the manager to manage the business in line with my overall purpose. And God has his kingdom purposes. And someday, as managers, we will give an account, just as a business manager has to answer to the owner and say, yeah, here's how we did the last month. We're going to stand before the Lord. Uh, we will give an account for working hard. That's a biblical principle to provide adequately for our families, and that burden is especially on the men. Um, it requires to be a good steward that you don't spend impulsively, where we just go out and buy, you know, again, using the management thing. Uh, if an owner came around and said, why do you have this piece of equipment? Hey, it just looked good. I just thought I'd buy it. Well, it's not part of our business plan. Well, I just kind of felt it would, you know, no. You, you operate by an orderly plan. And for most people, that means you keep a budget and you live within the budget and you keep good records it also, I think, providing for your family. And by the way, 1 Timothy 5.8 says, if you don't provide for your family, you're worse than an unbeliever and have denied the faith. That's a pretty strong statement. And, and part, I think, of providing for your family is having a will. What would happen should the Lord take you out of the game to your family? You have to provide for them. Having a will. I think it means budgeted savings for future anticipated needs. Things happen. I took my car in for a, what I thought was free service uh, thing to get a recall thing fixed, and they told me I needed 300 and some odd dollars worth of work on it yesterday. you got to have money in the bank for those kinds of things because they happen, and you plan for them. Uh, I believe also we should have planned giving off the top, not, well, we got a few bucks left this month, let's give it. No, I plan off the top how much I give, and then, yes, if I'm free, I give extra as well. Uh, so all of that is involved in <clears throat> this whole idea of biblical financial management, and it's important that the church teach that so that people give biblically, generously. Secondly, the church should then raise money through the generous grace-giving of its members. Back in the 1993 series I mentioned, one of the messages I preached was why you should not tithe. And I still get many emails from people who read or listen to that message online. Uh, I think it's a novel idea in many circles, but... My main point was you should not tithe because God wants you to give generously. And if you're only giving 10%, you're at the bottom of the barrel. I mean, that's not generous giving. And if you manage your funds God's way, I believe you can live debt-free 
and you can give far more than 10% to the Lord's work. And I'm not bragging, but we've done that for many, many years. Um, And uh, also, I think another fallacy with the 10% thing, and I referred to this a moment ago, is people think, hey, I gave 10%, I'm free. You know, I met my obligation, and now I can squander 90% on whatever I want. It's my money. No, it's not. See, that undercuts the idea of stewardship. 100% is not yours, it's God's. And you have to prayerfully determine, how does he want me to invest this kingdom-wise? And so, I am against the concept of tithing. Uh, The New Testament never mentions tithing in the epistles. And these were written to Gentile Christians, but brand new in the faith, coming out of pagan backgrounds, you would think, even though their giving is often mentioned, Paul never says, now you Gentiles need to understand, you need to give 10% to the Lord's work. Never. You won't find it. Um, When Paul does mention his collection for the poor saints in Judea in 1 Corinthians 16.2, he tells them this, On the first day of every week, each one of you is to put aside and save as he may prosper so that no collections be made when I come. Now, the the amount there, you notice, not put aside and save 10%. Put aside and save as he may prosper. So as God prospers you, it's not so that you can spend more and more and more and more on all the stuff the world says. It's so that you can give more to the Lord's work. Um, Another scripture, Paul wrote to Timothy, 1 Timothy 6, 17-19. He said, Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on uh, the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good and to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. Now before you think, wow, I'm sure glad that doesn't apply to me because I'm not rich, I would remind you, if you are an American, you are very rich by world standards. If you've ever traveled in third world countries, you know what I mean. Uh, We are rich. Now, Paul says, God supplies us with, richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. So I think that means we don't need to feel guilty about our American lifestyle and all of the goodies that the Lord and enables us to have, that's fine. But at the same time, he says we are to be rich in good works and be generous and ready to share. That's how our lifestyle should be. Rich in good works, generous, ready to share in the Lord's work. Um, If you ever listen to J. Vernon McGee with his Oklahoma accent... um, Though dead, he still speaks, I guess, on the radio. But I remember hearing him once saying, Folks, you know, if you go into a restaurant, you pay your bill. And if you get fed by a ministry, you need to pay your bill. You know, he was trying to get people to give to support his radio program. But if you're in a local church, then I believe the Lord's principle is you should help support the ministries of that church Not through tithing, but through generous grace giving as the Lord prospers. A third principle then is that the church should raise money by informing its members of financial needs. Uh, I don't know whether any of you have waded through my master's thesis, but um, Judy Young typed it and put it on the church website. And it was on New Testament principles of financial support for Christian workers. And in that, one of my main arguments was that there is no example of any Christian worker in the New Testament 
making his financial needs known to potential donors. And largely that's an argument from silence, I realize, but it seems like a loud silence giving, given the topic because it's these days everybody advertises their own needs. But when you study the New Testament on it, the Apostle Paul often uh, mentioned the needs of others, but he never solicited funds or mentioned his own needs. And I don't view it on the level of a biblical command, but it does seem to me to be an example that generally um, ought to be followed. Uh, I have now been in the ministry for 40 years, and only one time that I can recall back in the 1980s, I had to say to the elders, guys, if I don't get a raise, I've got to take some part-time work. Because they hadn't given me a raise in three or four or five years And at the time, inflation was running double digit, you know, like even up to 20% a year. So every year, I'm taking a pay cut. And I was at the point of just saying, "Uh, do you guys want me to go to work or what? I I just can't make ends meet if, if I continue. And I really hesitated to do that. At the same time, I had a pastor friend, and he used to pressure me and say, you need to negotiate for a raise. And... I just said to him, you know, I'm not comfortable with that kind of mindset. That's not where I'm at. Um, I just make my needs known to the Lord. In that case, though, it was going to affect my ministry because I was going to have to get a job outside of the pastorate if I didn't get a raise. But through the years, God has just graciously met our needs. And as I said, we've lived debt-free and uh, been able to give uh, to the Lord's work. Now, when it comes to the local church, though, I see a difference in terms of making needs known in that the church is a family. And in our family, and I think in every family, there ought to be communication about where we're at financially. If things are tight, we don't go out to dinner. Uh, You know, we don't buy stuff we don't need just to meet the needs. We cut back and live carefully. And if things are better, yeah, we can do some things. But I believe that families should sit down, talk about their monthly expenses, um, work out how can we meet our obligations to avoid going into debt, that kind of thing. And I think the family of God should do the same. There needs to be open communication, just saying, here's where we're at. And so let me mention that right now. Right now, uh, we recently received a very generous gift. And by the way, I, on purpose, do not know who gives gifts to the church unless somebody addresses a check to me for the church, but that doesn't happen very often. But other than that, I don't know who gives what, and I don't know if you give. So I'm ignorant on that by by design. But we, we received a uh, generous gift that puts us slightly ahead of our annual budget to date. Uh, Without that gift, we would be just under $24,000 in the hole already after two months in our fiscal year on our uh, giving toward our budget. And uh, to be honest, if the trend continues, then we've got to cut something, and about the only thing we can cut is either staff salaries or missions giving. Everything else, got to pay the light company and the gas company and the, all of those kind of bills. So that's just where we're at. And in the bulletin every week, you might notice we put just a statement of what our budget is to date, what our giving is to date, what our actual expenses are to date. That's just for information. And then a final way the church should raise money is through prayer, um, praying, asking God to provide. In the context of urging the Corinthians to give to the needs of the poor saints in Judea, Paul wrote this, 2 Corinthians 9.8, And God is able to make all grace abound to you, notice his repetition here now of all, so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. 
So if you lack funds for giving, ask the Lord. Lord, we would like to have money so we could give. And then when you get it, be careful to give it. Not to spend it on yourself. But the way God supplies our needs, both individually and as a church, is through prayer. Remember in the Lord's Prayer, Matthew 6, 11, Jesus said, Give us this day our daily bread. We should pray for our needs. And then in chapter 7 of Matthew, he added, verse 7, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it shall be opened to you. And I think that should apply both individually and as a church. If we have needs, we pray. And when God answers, it's always a great joy to say, Wow, you know, we prayed for that, and look how God supplied. And uh, we've had many examples of that individually, and uh, it's always a great joy. And over the years, without pledge drives and campaigns and gimmicks and all of that, I've just watched the Lord provide for the needs of the churches that I've, I've served, and it's a great joy to pray. So positively, then, we raise money by teaching biblical principles of financial management uh, by generous grace giving from people in the church as they are faithful to the Lord, by informing members of financial needs, and then through prayer. Now, a negative one. I don't think the church should raise money through annual pledge drives, through promoting tithing, or through any worldly high-pressure methods. And as I mentioned, many churches, every usually in the fall, they do annual pledge drives, and they pressure people to give a certain amount for the coming year. Another very common uh, method is what's called storehouse giving or storehouse tithing. Maybe you've been in churches that do that. And what they teach, based on a faulty interpretation or application of Malachi 3.10, is if you bring the full tithe into the storehouse, the church, then God will abundantly bless you. So test the Lord and see. Bring 10% into the church and God will give you far more. Well, if I'm not mistaken, that's a subtle appeal to greed. You know, give more and you'll get more. Okay, well, I'm going to tell you, give more and you'll probably have to live on less. Okay, that's just the way it works. Uh, there went that money. I don't have it. Now I have to pray, Lord, I need this and God has to provide it. But uh, that's, a, that's a gimmicky thing. And then churches use other worldly high-pressure fundraising methods. There are churches who hire professional fundraisers and they come in and uh, you sign a contract and they say we get this percentage of the take and they promise to raise all these this money and I don't know all that stuff just to me smacks of the world not of scripture I don't see that in the Bible so godly financial integrity means we raise money in a biblical way we try to say what does the Bible say about how we Uh, supply the needs of the church. But then the second major area is godly financial integrity means spending money in a biblical way. So how should we spend the funds that the Lord provides? And I'm going to give three ways we should spend money, and then I'm going to give one way we may spend money. In other words, it's not obligatory. It's optional. First of all, I believe Scripture shows that churches should spend money to support those who labor in preaching and teaching God's Word. In 1 Timothy 5.17, Paul said the elders, and remember that term is interchangeable with uh, overseers and with pastors, who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. And some scholars debate the meaning of double honor there, but I studied it extensively for my thesis, and I argue that in light of the context and in light of Paul's other writing, uh, as well as the meaning of the word honor in Greek, uh, Paul is talking about 
those who do that work should both receive respect in the church and adequate pay or financial remuneration. Backing that up is Galatians 6, 6, where Paul said, the one who is taught the word is to share all good things with the one who teaches him, and that all good things would include financial support. Now, Paul himself denied himself the right of receiving financial support from the churches he was ministering to at that time. In other words, he didn't want anybody to level an accusation. You're just a religious huckster. You're out to make money off the church you're ministering to. And so he wouldn't receive that. Um, But he did receive support from other churches while he was ministering in a different locale, as I'll mention in a moment. In the context, in 1 Corinthians 9, verses 1 through 18, I can't read that whole passage for sake of time, but in the middle of that discussion, Paul said this in 1 Corinthians 9, 14, So also the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. They are to be supported by it. I think I told you a couple of years ago, I had this character find me online, and uh, he was a self-appointed street evangelist, and he argued that because I receive a salary for ministry, that I am not a believer, and oh, he was hostile toward me. And I said to him, okay, then how do you deal with these verses? Seems to me the scripture is pretty clear that those who labor in the gospel are to be supported by it. A second way the church should use the money that the Lord provides is to help support those who then take the gospel to other locations. Uh, They go out preaching the gospel. Um, In Philippians, for example, Paul makes it clear that he received support from the Philippian church while he was ministering down in Corinth, a couple hundred miles south. Um, In 3 John, the Apostle John writes this, Beloved, you are acting faithfully in whatever you accomplish for the brethren, and especially when they're strangers, and they have testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their way in a manner worthy of God, for they went out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles, that is, unbelievers. Therefore, we ought to support such men so that we may be fellow workers with the truth. So he's talking about traveling evangelists or missionaries who go out, and he's urging the church to support them. Now that raises another question. The needs of missionaries and missions is just enormous. So how do you allocate funds to, to all these needs? Uh, for that purpose, we have a missions policy that we uh, you can read. We have it, I think it's on the church website. And it gives some guidelines in that. But even with the policy, let's be honest, it's not always easy. It's not just a flow chart. Uh, But we try and emphasize two things. One is we want to focus on supporting those who are taking the gospel to places that have yet to have the gospel, to areas where there's not a local indigenous church. And then second, and sometimes these two conflict, But we want to support those from our own congregation who feel led to go out into mission. And as you know, uh, we have a number of those. And we have a prayer notebook you can pick up that has uh, all of our missionaries and where they're serving, if it's not too sensitive, uh, and how you can pray for them. A third way churches should help Uh, or use the funds, is to help the needy, both locally here in our church and then through Christian missions worldwide that are involved in ministries of compassion to the poor. A friend of mine, Bob Deffenbaugh, in a message on this, says that 90% of the references to giving 
in the New Testament are related to helping poor believers. So that is the strong focus of the New Testament. Uh, For example, John, who's often very blunt, puts it very straight in 1 John 3.17. He says, But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? And I believe there he's reflecting the words of the Lord Jesus who said, to the extent you do it, that is you help even the least of these my brothers, you are doing it unto me. So we should help needy saints, believers. Now as far what about unbelievers? Well, the main focus of ministry to unbelievers should be the gospel. Because if you help people financially and they die and perish, you haven't really helped them. So it should be the gospel. And yet at the same time, often ministries of mercy, that is helping people financially or with health needs or other kinds of needs, can open the door for the gospel. Um, the very golden rule that you should do unto others as you, you would want them to do to you, I think means that we should act with wise compassion toward the needy. Paul combines the need both for believers and unbelievers in Galatians 6.10 where he says, So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people and especially to those who are of the household of faith. So he puts, first of all, the household of faith and then beyond that, to all people. Now, again, having said that, it's not an easy task to be wise and helpful when we give to the needy. It's not as easy as just doling out money to anybody who asks because that's often not the kind of help that really helps people. And we want to give genuine help and not just enable a person to continue with irresponsible behavior uh, or to create dependency. So we have to distinguish between various types of poor people, and that involves discernment. Many years ago, R.C. Sproul, in an article, pointed out that there are different categories of poor in the Bible. He listed four. First of all, there are those who are poor because of laziness or disobedience, and in the Bible, that group receives God's judgment. Secondly, there are those who are poor because of disease or famine or other catastrophe, and that group receives the compassion both of God and of God's people. Thirdly, there are poor because of exploitation, and that group receives God's protection through justice. And then there are those, he said, who are poor for righteousness' sake, and that group um, endures Voluntary poverty due to their own decision to choose less affluent endeavors or vocations. So the point is, we have to be discerning. Um, you know, do people truly want help? Or are they just looking for somebody to enable them to continue their dependent lifestyle and uh, not be responsible? <laughs> One time I was leaving church about 5 o'clock and a guy hit me up for some money. He said he was hungry. And I said, well, you know, they're serving dinner right now two blocks over at the mission. He says, I can't go there. He said, I uh, don't have an ID. I said, really? I thought they would serve dinner to anybody. I said, give me your name. I'll go call them and tell them you're coming. And he used a vulgar expression, but said, I'm just putting you on. (laughs) He said, I'm just putting you on. And he walked off. Uh, He didn't want dinner. He just wanted me to give him money so he could go buy another bottle of wine or something. Um, If you want to read on the subject, there are two very helpful books. One of them is called When Helping Hurts. It's uh, by um, Steve Corbett and Brian Fickert. And the other one is called Giving Wisely by Jonathan Martin. John, if you remember, spoke here once. He was a young man in my church in California 
and he's now a missions pastor up in Portland, and uh, a very, very helpful book on how to give wisely. Also, you may not know, our church has what is called an SOS fund, and it stands for Serving Others Sharing. It's not part of our budget, but if you see a need of someone in the church, you can write a check to that fund and suggest to the elders, you know, so-and-so is in need. Now, the IRS requires that we have final say. We may decide, no, we can't do that. Normally, we funnel it as designated, but um, that's one way you can help the, through the church and do it anonymously if you would like so that you might see someone in need and want to give to them. So churches then, first of all, are required to support those who labor in preaching and teaching. And secondly, those who take the gospel to other places, missionaries and missions, uh, to help the poor and needy both here and around the world. Now, the final point is not required. It's optional, okay? But churches may require, uh, acquire and maintain adequate facilities. As you know, in the Old Testament, there was the tabernacle and the temple, which were temple was very ornate as a place for worship. But you come to the New Testament, and there are no church buildings. We are the temple of God, the people not the building. And uh, the church survived the first three centuries without any buildings because of persecution. In the fourth century, the emperor Constantine lifted persecution and church build began, churches began to build facilities in which they could meet. Historically, the Roman Catholic Church has built ornate and expensive cathedrals. If you've ever traveled through Europe, you come into little towns, and there's a huge, huge steeple sticking up. And uh, if you've gone in any of those, we went in one in Brno, Czech Republic once. And in the wall, there were huge gemstones, rubies and emeralds and things. I mean, these were large stones just implanted in the wall. And that church was hundreds of years old. So that's been the approach of the Catholic Church. The Protestant reformers uh, went simple and less ornate. And if you've seen pictures of the Puritan churches and all of that, they're very simple. Uh, Perhaps the U.S. church has mimicked that in the, the Protestant church in that we have many churches these days that meet in storefronts or even in um, revamped industrial buildings and that kind of thing. Uh, there's also a movement, and there are many now who are turned off by spending millions and millions of dollars on buildings, and, uh, and they've gone to a house church model. Some of you know the name Francis Chan. Uh, he's a well-known author, and he was pastor of a megachurch, and he resigned, and now he's heading up a house church movement. So how should we evaluate that trend? Well, let me give you a few positives and then a few concerns. Positively, I think house churches avoid the cost of leases or uh, purchasing or maintaining facilities. And they often avoid supporting pastors because they don't have full-time pastors and teachers. Uh, They also experience closer fellowship, and uh, conceivably there can be better shepherding because everybody knows everybody. It's a small group, and nobody just attends and leaves whose life is in disaster, and they don't get the shepherding they they need, as can happen in a megachurch. And, of course, house churches do much better under persecution. They can fly under the radar. There are some downsides, as I've thought it through, and that is, first of all, by not supporting those who preach and teach the word, often there is inferior teaching in those churches. I realize they can compensate by going online and listening to MacArthur and Piper and others, but um, if they multiply, they get too big and have to go to two, and they haven't raised up adequate leadership, then... Uh, those churches are going to be weak. And I have read 
that the house churches in China are rife with heresy because they've multiplied under persecution, but they don't have adequate leadership, and so uh, all kinds of errors have crept into those churches. I think another problem is house churches tend to become ingrown. We're a cozy little fellowship, and they don't reach out and have a mindset we need to multiply, and then they can become too homogeneous. By that I mean everybody's of the same age range, or everybody's of the same social background, and they're not reaching out cross-culturally and across the social spectrum. Uh, House churches are not able, usually, to provide ministries for uh, children's ministry or teens, and frankly, they often, even though they should have more funds, uh, aren't as capable of mission endeavors as larger churches are that may be joined with other churches in supporting missions. Now, obviously, we're not a house church. We have a facility here, and uh, we have um, a need for more room for offices and classrooms and other things. And so that leads to my final point, and that is that godly financial integrity means saving money in a biblical way. On the personal financial level, I believe there is a biblical principle that if you know you have a need in the future, you should be saving for it now. Um, That just makes sense. And I think that applies to a church. If we as a church don't think about where are we going to be going in a few years and what needs will we have, we're not thinking wisely about finances. And so in our church budget, It's not in the expense column, but in the budget column. We've built in a little bit each year to build up some reserves so that if the parking lot across the street comes for sale, as you may know, we lease the middle part of that lot. We don't own it. And if the owner decides to sell, we would be in a position to purchase it. Another future need, the roof on this thing is over 25 years old because It was here when I came, and um, roofs don't last that long, especially in Flagstaff. So that's going to be probably a $100,000 deal just to replace the roof. So part of the budget is that. Now, in one year, we're not going to meet those goals. It's over several years, um, but we have that need. It's not even in the budget, but when you go into the fireside room between services to get some refreshments, look down. The carpet is pretty shabby. Uh, That's just another unbudgeted need. Now, that brings up a question. Should a church then avoid all debt? All debt. Well, I'm going to argue this. As with personal finances... Debt is risky and undesirable if you can avoid it. At the same time, I wouldn't own my house, which now thankfully is paid off, but I wouldn't own my house had I not taken a mortgage. I just couldn't have afforded that. So I'd still be forking out now probably 1200 or more a month in rent, and I don't have to do that now because I bought a house on a mortgage. So I'm going to argue that some debt is advisable at times. Yes, it's risky, um, but it can be a wise thing to do. Uh, Also, you get into situations where there's an emergency and debt is unavoidable, and you have to do it. Um, I would argue as a church, say the parking lot came up for sale this month. We don't have the money. I would say it would be unwise to let a business buy that lot. As you know, parking is tight downtown, and uh, we're already overcrowded. I think it would be foolish if we didn't raise the money in advance to let that go. So my argument would be we would need to take some reasonable debt, but preferably let's save in advance for that need. We know it's coming, and we ought to be Uh, donating to that fund so that when the opportunity comes, we'll have the funds in hand. So godly integrity then, in a nutshell, means obtaining funds, spending funds, and saving funds 
uh, in line with Scripture. Some years ago, people were asked in a national survey to rank various occupations or professions for honesty and integrity. And they put TV evangelists near the bottom of 73 occupations sandwiched between prostitutes and organized crime bosses. And uh, that is funny, but it's kind of sad, isn't it? TV evangelists. Well, the local church should not be that way. We should be a model of biblical, trustworthy integrity because we follow God's word on how we receive money, how we spend money, and how we prudently save money for future needs to avoid debt. Just as I close, I want to mention that in the context of raising money, Paul put in a, a beautiful verse that I want to close with. 2 Corinthians 8, 9. He said this, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might be rich. That's the motivation for giving right there. Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, laid aside the glory of heaven, which we have no idea what that is, and he took on the form of a servant, and he went to the cross as a substitute for sinners, and that's all of us. And the grace means that God offers freely to every sinner who will come to Christ riches, the surpassing riches of Christ, Paul puts it in Ephesians 3.8. Eternal life, forgiveness of all sin, heaven someday, forever with Christ. And it's a gift. And before you can give to this church, you need to receive the gift of eternal life that God offers through Jesus. Let's bow together. Dear Father, I pray that if any are here who are spiritually poor because they have not received the incredible, vast, inexhaustible riches that you freely offer in Jesus Christ, they would put their trust in him. And then, Lord, as good stewards of all you give us, I pray that all of us would be sensitive to your kingdom purpose that we would manage the funds you give us in line with biblical principles, that someday we may give a good account to you when we stand before you. I ask in Jesus' name.